Great afternoon. You are in the fast lane with Sarah Jane, and my guest today is Matt Pepsel. Matt was a struggling manager, and he turned into a capable leader and talent optimization expert. And I think when most people, Matt, look at talent optimization expert, they're thinking, what in the world is that? So welcome into the fast lane today. Sarah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So tell me, you're, you have a really fascinating background. So tell us what you did and how you got to be who you are today. Yeah, I'd say that uh, one of my first adult jobs was in the military. I was in the Marine Corps and I did the best I could to soak up everything that they had to teach us about how to lead and, and how to manage crisis and all these great things. I got out of the Marines and I went to take my first civilian job and I was a software product manager. And when I started to manage people, I figured that's, uh, I, I probably knew how that worked. And ultimately I found out that I didn't. I found that you have to manage people in the, in the real world, as it were, a little bit different than you do in the military. To make the transition a little bit easier for me, I had a trunk full of audiobooks at the time, as many years ago, obviously. I was studying everything about technology and computers and business and all the hard aspects of, of strategy because I figured that's what business people did. But then when I came and I had my own team members and I was a, a leader for the first time, I kind of got the order wrong. And I started to realize I had a lot more to learn when it came to the people parts of what made leaders super successful. So that's why I say that I was a struggling manager and, and it all kind of really came to a head for me when I had to fire a woman that I myself had chosen to hire because I didn't really understand people and how they fit to jobs and, and really how to make the most of, of that type of evaluation and coaching and development. So um, after that, it was a, a really challenging uh, move for me to make that. And obviously, uh, you know, have a bigger impact on her. And we were just like trying to figure out like, why do we get the order wrong? You know, when we have this, this management opportunity, uh, and so then I just dedicated myself to figuring out how to get the people part right. Let's not, though, downplay your time in the military because mm -hmm. you did extensive studying. You were a very intelligent individual. So you, do you think it's fair to say that you were very book smart at the time when you came out of the military? Yeah, I think that that's true. In the Marines, you know, we had, had the way I was taught, it was mission accomplishment, troop welfare in that order. Those are your two objectives. And I think that that works in that environment really well. And I respect the hell out of what uh, I learned in the Marines and certainly the work that they do every day. And I really started to appreciate how much time we spent on leadership, because if you need a, a major or a colonel, you can't just go to another branch of the service or go to the civilian world to hire one. You have to develop from within. So I thought that's how all adults experience you know, life that you just learn about leadership. And, and I came into the civilian world to find out that that's not the case at all. You have to be a little bit more self-interested or be fortunate enough to get into an organization that really cares about those things. And then uh, you, you fare a lot better. So do you think mission accomplished would be second? Your welfare of your team is first, mission accomplished is second. Yeah, I think it, it's what happens is that I find now that the mission takes care of itself if you take care of your people. Yes, you have to put people in a position to be able to do the work. You have to hold them accountable. There's a lot of aspects of strategy that you have to get right. But I think that when we have the right people for the job and we encourage them to support one another and we make sure that we're taking care of our people along the way, the result at business kind of takes care of itself if you're doing everything else right. So, yeah, I think as, as a matter of emphasis goes, yes, I, I definitely think that um, 
I, I preach now about people first leadership. I definitely spend a lot of time on the people parts of business. Uh, let's put it this way, Sarah. I see more companies that have great strategies and great processes, but lousy people approaches who struggle than I do the alternative. So why do you think some people are so scared to be in a leadership position or they will do? I, I will actually, I know someone personally who said flat out, there's no way I would want a supervisor job, a superintendent job because I just do not want to deal with that hassle. Why do you think that's so intimidating? I think there's probably two reasons. One is that leadership is a big word, right? When you think about like, who are the most uh, prominent leaders of, uh, that we think about, you think about Abraham Lincoln and all these types of people. And you're like, okay, how am I going to compete with that? Right. Mm -hmm. And the other is that people are complex. And so there's a lot of variables that go into social dynamics and people, and it's a big responsibility. But having said that, I think that there's really a lot of, I have a lot of respect for people who say, I'm great at what I do. I just want to focus on what I do. I don't want that other stuff. And other people who are called to lead and they say, no, actually, I really enjoy working with and through other people. That's a huge part of what I enjoy and what I feel that I'm good at. So I really think, I, I think both types of approaches can work. Um, but I hate to see somebody who says, I kind of would like to see what it's like, but I'm afraid I'm holding myself back. That's a, that's a, a tougher situation. I, I, I like to coach and help people get through those types of barricades um, more so than people who are like, nope, I've thought about it. I, maybe I've even done it. I know I don't like it, but that I totally respect. How do you help people come overcome those barricades? Like people who maybe know they would like to do better, be better, live better, but they just mentally aren't in that capacity. A lot of it starts with trying to help them come up with their own definition of what leadership is. Leadership, you, you can find a hundred different definitions of it, but the one that matters most is what's in the leader's mind. And so when you start to break down, what does it mean to lead? You know, in my own view, I think it's all about self-mastery. It's all about how we evolve and understand and develop self-awareness and work on improving ourselves. It's all about inspiring others, connecting with them and developing sort of a shared camaraderie and and a collective pursuit of a mission. And then finally delivering results, you know, getting the job done. And so when you start to break it down and start to talk to people about how they see leadership, they realize they're already doing those things. You know, maybe they do it with their kids' school. Maybe they do it in their community. Maybe they've done it at work just as a peer, as opposed to having direct reporting relationships. And then what you find is that if you start to uh, explore a little deeper and you say, you know, what? I do care deeply about people and I want to see them be okay. And I like to help people achieve goals or, or things. Then you realize that maybe there's some other part of, of the lofty title of leadership that might be holding you back, but you're already doing those things. I think we have leaders at every level. It's just, we don't always look at ourselves that way. Absolutely. And I think it's important for people to realize that someone is likely for in, for in everyone's situation, someone is looking at you as a leader. Like you don't think that you're leading, but you are for sure setting an example. So I definitely think people sometimes downplay their role, even if it is uh, in their children's class, or if it's teaching a Sunday school class, it's just, it, it could be very minuscule to you, but it, you're really, you're really a role model for someone. That is one benefit you brought up earlier about uh, military service is that I always saw myself as a leader after I separated. Uh, whether I was an individual contributor, when I had a small team, I was, I just always kind of thought of myself in that mindset and it made it much easier to take on an increasing responsibility as that time you know, came. 
So when you think about yourself as a leader saying, if I walk into Starbucks, I'm a leader, you know, I, I basically want to help people succeed. I want to help make their, their, uh, their job pursuits more successful, whatever it is they're trying to do. I want to help them do that. Uh, that's what leadership is to me. And, and I feel like we all can be leaders. And in this time, in this world, the way that it is right now, the world needs leaders and needs us to step up and to take advantage of those leadership opportunities. It's not something to be afraid of because you don't have to be perfect. There are no perfect leaders, but I think it is something that you have to embrace and, and just, you know, try your best to make those connections with people and, you know, guide us toward whatever that positive vision of the future is that you see, whether it's again, your bake sale or, you know, the CEO of your company or in your community, whatever it might be. I had read or heard one time that a college admission question was, are you a leader or are you a follower? And I don't know the percentage, but let's say 99 out of 100 were leaders. One said they were a follower. They got a letter back that said, that's great that you were a follower. Um, and they were admitted because they said that they were a follower. Do you think that it is important to be one versus the other? Or do you think like... Leadership is our main topic today, obviously. But if someone is going to say, I'm a follower, do you think that there's some importance in that and just laying it out on the line? I think there's definitely importance in, in being a follower, being a good team player. I like to say that I'm a leader all the time, but if my bride is in the room, I'm definitely a follower. Let's just be clear <laughs> about that. But I, I think the way that we follow uh, speaks a little bit to the way that we lead. So like, there's times when, especially for people who are in various stages of the organization, maybe if they're not the CEO, you may be in a meeting where you are the leader, you're the supervisor of a team, and then you go to the next meeting and you're a follower because you know your leader is leading that meeting. And uh, your context can shift very, very quickly. Or you might be a peer and you're working on a cross-functional project where nobody's really the leader. You're all peers and you're all, you know, from a reporting relationship, everybody's equal, but somebody has to lead or you know, those types of things. So I think context dictates whether I lead or whether I follow. Additionally, my approach, even when I'm in a supervisory role, I would refer to as a coaching approach. I wanna make sure that the objective is clear. I wanna make sure that my people are taken care of, but I love to spin my chair around and say, how can I help? Task me with something, tell me what to do. Uh, tell me what you need done and let others take the lead. So even though you're the supervisor, doesn't mean you're always leading because you wanna develop accountability in others. And you don't always have to be in charge all the time. That's not what, that's not what leadership is. I love that. I love that you said that because that I think that is very important. And so in, to me, if I were to define leadership, leadership is to help people live their best life. So, right. Asking the questions or just sometimes assisting actually would make you a good leader. Yeah. And it comes down to technique, right? So I know as an example in the medical field, the chiropractic as an example, then you're like, Hey, if I tell my patient what to do, they might do it. If they think that my authority is important enough, they should just do it. But that's not going to work with every patient. Some of them are going to be like, yeah, right. Another, though, is to take a coaching approach. And let's get clear about why I'm asking you to take this course of treatment and what's important in your life and being there and playing and being active with your grandkids or whatever. And then all of a sudden, maybe they're more likely. So sometimes you take a coaching approach. Sometimes you take an, an authoritative or a directive approach, depending on what the situation and the person you're leading calls for. Uh, so I think leadership is a little more, more complex than just a, a role, like a, a, a reporting relationship role. So yes, the way we follow, the way we lead, the way we support, all these things are reflections of, of how we ultimately see our role in making a collective win. That's the one thing I think all forms of what we've been talking about is, have had in common is that it's about a collective win. It's, not, it's something bigger than what I can accomplish on my own. Mm -hmm. 
Even if a person is not really classified as a good leader, why do you think that some people get addicted to the leadership role or even the title? I think some people certainly enjoy uh, getting results. They want to uh, see that manifest no matter what. Other people are really like myself. I don't know if I'd say I'm addicted, but I definitely enjoy the uh, leadership just in my core. I like reading about it, studying it, thinking about it, talking about it. Uh, because to me, the reason it becomes addictive is that it just, it fills and, and, and resonates with a part of me that I, that I feel uh, kind of warm inside and very fulfilled when, when, um, you know, when I get it right. So like if somebody comes to me and they worked for me many years ago, different company now, and they come, they say, Hey, I had a situation in my office and something you taught me back then, or something you helped me with back then really helped me in this case, break through with this person, man, that feels good to me. That's better than any raise I could get any promotion, any, any trophy, like any of that mm -hmm. stuff, because it just resonates with that authentic part of me that that's just kind of how I'm wired and what I'm all about. So I think that that being addicted that way and looking to be a leader in all situations can come from a really intrinsic place and probably a pretty healthy place. Or it can be something that you're like, no, that's how society tells me that I'm supposed to be. If I'm in charge, that's how, you know, that's supposed to be a good thing by somebody else's definition. And I don't think that's nearly as healthy. Without being without stereotyping anyone, do you think it's fair to say that a self-centered person is usually not a good leader? Um, I, I don't think so in the sense that you have to be somewhat self-centered or at least self-aware. There's some something on that spectrum of self-orientation is essential, I believe, to be a great leader. You have to know what you're all about. You have to know uh, your values. You have to know your strengths. So you couldn't be totally like um, selfless and be a great leader, in my opinion. But the point then quickly shifts after you said, okay, now I know me. Now I have to have awareness of what I would call instead of self-awareness, I would call other awareness. Mm -hmm. I have to look and realize that people are different from me. They have different needs that I have to meet. They have different tendencies and preferences. Not everyone wants to hear things direct. If I'm a guy that wants to give direct feedback and, and get it, yep. that doesn't mean everybody on my team does. And then the last bit is situational awareness. What does the situation call for? What's happening? Like if you're going through like right, a lot of organizations right now are going through change because of a variety of different reasons. Change unsettles people. If people aren't at their best, they're not feeling great about what's going on. Uh, maybe hybrid work, like working on Zoom all the time. There's lots of different things happening. Then we have to have that situational awareness in addition to other awareness and self-awareness if we're going to make the right choices about how to lead. So being a leader is very multifaceted. It is. And I think that's what makes it exciting, but also complex. There's no prescriptive way that says, oh, if I just do these three things all the time, I'm going to be a great leader. No, it doesn't quite work that way. And uh, it, oh, okay. So if I just focus on myself and I really develop myself, I'm really, well, that's part of it, but there's more to it than that. Yeah. It, it can be pretty involved, but it, it shouldn't allow anybody to um, be intimidated. I don't want anybody to be intimidated by that because it is very natural once you can quiet down your mind and really tap into what you're all about and read the situation and have natural empathy and open ears when it comes to working with other people, leadership flows very naturally when we don't get in its way, I find, mm -hmm. uh, for all types of people. And so uh, it's not as, it, it is complex, but it is also a very natural thing for us to do. So I like to say that I like to be in a room of people 
um, who know more than me or more different, know different things than I do, because then I'm always learning, right? But if you are a leader and you have that top, top spot uh, name, or you are actually in that role, how important is it then to either bring people up to your level or reach people at all different levels? Because how we were talking about no one is at the same level, right? We have all different, people are different. Everyone is so different that it's hard for people to learn all the same way. So if you're really direct with me and I'm cool with that, but then we have someone else who kind of needs to be coddled a little bit. How important is it that you are versatile in meeting people where they are without other people thinking they're being maybe babied? Yeah, I think it's very important to understand people's needs and to modify your style to meet them. I have three kids. They're all similar in some ways, but they're all quite different in others. Mm -hmm. If I were to just have the same parenting style three times over, then that's not going to work out so great. Yeah. But if I understand that this one needs somebody more direct and this one's more sympathetic to something else, then I have to tailor my parenting style to match their needs in order for us to have the depth of our relationship and to have the most constructive way to get their doggone homework done, whatever <laughs> it might be, right? And so it just, it's very natural that as parents that we kind of realize that not all of our kids are the same. It's really no different at work. When you start to realize that whether we're talking about different levels, different le um, lengths of experience, different functional domains, like leading is still at its core, very similar. It's just your approach changes. And I'll give you an example. So I come from a software product background. I've raised and, and trained and, and uh, led people who are in software product roles. And it's very natural to do that because you've done that type of work. And so you can give them functional expertise and training and skills and techniques to go along with just developing them as people. But at the same time, I have people who are much better at things uh, functionally, like instructional designers and all kinds of project managers and things that I've never done that type of work and I never will do that type of work, but I can still be an effective leader for them because I don't try to advance them in their technical capabilities. We have other ways of doing that, but I can still lead them and I can still understand what they're all about and, and uh, find out how to meet their needs. So I just have to do it a little bit differently. That's all. And I actually enjoy uh, leading people who have functional backgrounds that I don't have, because then I'm learning too. You know, I've learned a ton about those types of fields because I didn't have the same sort of background. Uh, but it's not a reason to be intimidated by it or say, well, I can't be useful to you. No, that's not at all true. Leaders have to be um, you know, more focused on the leadership ca capacity than you know being functional experts in a role. I love that you brought up the parenting um, description there, because that's a perfect example of you being a leader. Maybe you don't think you're a leader, but you really, really are. And yes, they are all so different. They all do not respond the same way. So that was good. Now, they don't. And, and I think raising them to be leaders in their own right is important too. I think absolutely. I've been uh, very interested. So one thing we know about school systems, for example, is they're very good at preparing. Well, I should say they, they try to be very good at preparing kids for the world of work. And so now what you've seen inside of, of schools at almost every level is a lot of project and group-based work. So now you have kids that are in, let's call it sixth, seventh, eighth grade, come home, they say, oh, it was this group project and there's this one kid that wasn't pulling their weight. That's a leadership opportunity, right? You got to figure and find out how to work in these complex environments. And I think it's, it does prepare them very well for that. So again, go back to you know some of my, my three pillars there. You've got a group project. What do you notice about yourself? 
What do you notice about how you're feeling when that person, that other kid's not pulling their weight? How does that make you feel? How'd you respond? Were you angry? Were you solemn? Did you just stay up late and do the work for them? Like all these things are ways they can learn about themselves. Then when it comes to inspiring others, you know, what sort of conversation did you have? How did you uh, ask questions? How did you take a coaching approach with that person? Maybe they didn't realize that they weren't doing something that that you needed them to do or, or however that works. So there's, you know, at the same time that we're leading them, we have to recognize that a part of our role is to develop their leadership capabilities as well, because they will be called on to lead at some point in their adult life. And we want to make sure that they're ready. And how do people contact you or when do they contact you? When, when are people calling you for assistance? What are they needing from you? Ideally early, if they need help and they want some advice or input, if they want some mentoring, if they want some uh, counsel, a lot of times one of the the, the most uh, proudest I am is when somebody comes and says, hey, so-and-so said I should come talk to you about this because I have a situation. They said you're naturally you know, good or you have a lot of insights on this type of thing. So when it's early, that's a really great opportunity because then you have space and you have time to sort of look at the situation, take that coaching style approach. You've got a little bit of that peace time to work with. In a remedial case where you have, I've got somebody on my team who's struggling and I don't want to lose them, but I got to see a change in this person. Okay, now the pressure's on. Now we've got the temperature turned up a little bit. You know, it's going to be a little bit more of a, of a fine art here, how we are going to have a sense of urgency, but at the same time, get some changes. It's more of a high wire act at that point. And it can still be done. You know, it can still be salvaged situations. I've turned those around, no problem. But um, I prefer the first. <laughs> so it's one of those things where if you if you have some foresight, like maybe it's like, hey, I'm about to hire somebody, but they haven't started yet. And I want to do a great job being a leader for them. Maybe I'm new to this or I've never hired this type of person before. What kind of uh, how should I approach this? That's a great time because then you've got plenty of time and space to um, really be thoughtful about your approach versus the other. So talent optimization is, I, I like that wording a lot. So you're taking people who you know can be better, do better, live better, and making them realize it themselves. Definitely. And I think all within the context of the business. So the one thing we think about is how do we help our people be at their best so that we can all help the business be at its best? And that's the thing about talent optimization. That's what that optimal term is. How do we maximize our business result? Because we're in a business context, or it could be a nonprofit or a school system, whatever it might be. But the organizational context, how do we get maximum results, but do it by optimizing both the performance and the experience of our people? Make sure they're doing a great job individually, collectively, as peers, whatever it might be. But they're also enjoying that work together to put up those results. If you find there's ever an issue with an individual's performance or teams or the overall experience, you'll realize that we've skipped something when it comes to the way that we lead, the way that we've constructed the environment of people doing meaningful work. And it's just a chance to go back and, and fix those things. How soon can you spot someone that maybe should not be in their role? Pretty quickly. I think uh, a couple things happen. One is that if the results begin to slip, so let's say that uh, it, let's say it's a new hire within the first ninety days, you don't expect them to perform like they've been there for nine years, but you do have certain expectations of what uh, type of learning is going to take place, what types of peer relationships across the business are going to form, um, how they're going to be accountable for things that are appropriate for somebody in their first ninety days, and if you start to see that those aren't coming through, then the question is, all right. What is it about the approach? What is it about the way I'm giving my, my equivalent of orders, my instructions? Uh, what can I be doing to think, make things more clear? 
How can we create more transparency so I can see your progress on things? Uh, th those are some examples of things that can happen. So th that's the first one is the business result. The other is what I call uh, friction, like people friction or people tax, or mm -hmm. there's sort of um, issues that can take place. If you have people who are like, you know, there's not a strong relationship or there's something that there's, there's some frustration, they're in your office complaining about another group or something. Those are evidence also that there's something not quite right. And, and you probably need to step in and figure out what's going on. Let, hey, let's get the two of you in a room together. Clearly there's something going on here that, you know, we're not having a good time or the mm -hmm. results are starting to slip. Let's figure out uh, and let's look at this together. Let's look at this objectively. Those are those are some some things that happen. So either if the results start to slip or if the ends start to fray in terms of the social fabric between two people or among a team, those are times when a leader needs to intervene and say, okay, we're not at our best right now. No problem, but let's let's get on this. Do you often work with leaders who are leading a large group or do you ever do uh, like a person who has a just a couple employees? Do, is it both or is it mainly the big scale? No, it's, it's all sizes and, and the average team size that we find in organizations is about seven people. So you think about there could be larger teams than that. There are smaller, but if you're a team and, and let's say that you're, uh, let me think of an example here. So let's say that you're on a facilities maintenance team. Your job is to make sure that all the lights work and everything is like clean and safe in the building. And there's a team of seven people and it's inside of a really big uh, facility, really big company. Let's say it's inside of a hospital. Well, guess what? That facility team within that hospital needs to perform at its best. Those employees deserve to be able to perform well at their jobs because that's what they're getting paid to do, but also to have a great experience with one another and with the other teams with which they interact. So the reality is that that team needs to be optimal, just like the executive team at that hospital needs to be optimal. Now, the context is different right? The situation's different. The people are different, but I don't want to think that, oh, well, if you're in the boardroom, I care about your experience. But if you're down in the break room, I don't. No, no, right. no. People at work have a right to have a great, enjoyable experience at work. Work doesn't have to suck. And in exchange, I expect them to do high quality work and be paid fairly for it. Like we can have all that stuff. We don't need to let all this get in the way. I, I love what you do because you truly make a difference in people's lives. And by changing their lives, they change the lives of others. So it's, it's like a cascading effect that that's, this is what you do. Yeah. And I think that if I had one uh, sort of adjective or phrase or feeling that I want people to have when they come to work, it's power. I want them to feel powerful because they're creating value. They're getting paid to do a job and they may have kind of lost sight of that job a little bit about like, okay, here I am, you know, making sure the facility is clean and safe and, and well lit and all these things. That's important because if we don't have that, then that's a big problem. So I want you to feel empowered about the work that you're doing. And I want you to feel powerful that you can stand up for yourself and, and, and work hard and advocate and also create an environment that everyone else enjoys being a part of. You can smile. You can ask someone how their day is going. You can say to somebody, hey, I, I understand uh, what you do a little bit, but I'd like to know more. Tell me more about what you do. Is there anything I can do differently to help? Like those are things we can all do for free. And I think they make our workplaces better as a result. And you can work with anyone all over the world, right? Because you can coach anyone like this. Yeah, everyone who's got employees, you know, I think that's the reality is the work we do is important. The people who do that work are super important. So how do we make sure that we're putting people as the priority and so that the work kind of takes care of itself? Yeah, I, I, I think every organization deserves to be optimal, um, but it's not going to come for free. You know, we have to work at it. It doesn't just happen naturally, 
uh, but it can be done. All right. And wrapping up, is there any success story, uh, any person that you have worked with that you is your favorite that really made a mark on you? I don't know that I have any favorites. I think um, I, I learned something from every interaction that I have with uh, customers, with partners, with, uh, with, with organizations of any size. And I'll tell you that one of the most, I, I'm kind of a, a, a more recency kind of guy. And I'll tell you the most recent leadership experience I had, I was at Harvard Business School last week for an executive education program. And we had a room full of leaders, more than 100 leaders. These are organizations. These are some of the most achievement-minded people that you'll ever assemble in a room. And over the course of a week, we talked about our challenges, our fears, our biggest failures, the crucibles we face in our life. We talked about good stuff too, but we talked about a lot of that heavy duty stuff. And I came to realize that this was some of the most accomplished leaders that you'll find on the planet. There's not a perfect leader among us in that room. So you don't have to be perfect to be a great leader. That was a transformative experience for me just to understand that everybody's been through some stuff and if they're willing to tap into it and admit it and acknowledge it, it can make them stronger leaders on the other side of all that. So I feel like that's um, something that's important for leaders at every level. And regardless of when you're listening, whatever stage of life you're in, or whether you're in the business world or not, or whether your parent doesn't matter, like you don't have to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. Nobody is, but it, it, it doesn't take away your ability to be a great leader. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.